0: the demographics are such is 50% of the population needs a one bedroom unit. That's it. They're either empty nesters or millennials, or single moms or single dads, you know, etc. They just need one bedroom.
1: Welcome to the tiny house lifestyle podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman. And this is episode 131 with Dan Fitzpatrick. Dan Fitzpatrick is the Director of Government Relations and President of the Tiny Home Industry Association and has made a name for himself as the go-to guy for tiny home legalization. This info-packed conversation does not disappoint. We talk about the importance of calling our homes movable tiny homes instead of tiny homes on wheels, the current state of Appendix Q, and how to do tiny house advocacy the right way. I hope you stick around. But before we get started, did you know that I personally send a Tiny House newsletter every week on Tuesdays? It's called Tiny Tuesdays, and it's a weekly email with Tiny House news, interviews, photos, and resources. It's free to subscribe, and I even share sneak peeks of things that are coming up, ask for feedback about upcoming podcast guests, and more. It's really the best place to keep the pulse on what I'm doing in the tiny house space and also stay informed of what's going on in the tiny house movement. To sign up, go to thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter where you can sign up for the Tiny Tuesdays newsletter. And of course, you can unsubscribe at any time. I will never send you spam. And if you ever don't want to receive emails, it's easy to unsubscribe. So again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy next week's Tiny Tuesdays newsletter. All right, I am here with Dan Fitzpatrick. Dan is the Director of Government Relations and President of the Tiny Home Industry Association. He has made presentations to cities and counties throughout the United States on the opportunities for tiny houses as a means to meet the ever-growing need for affordable and sustainable housing. Because of his government and developer experience, he's been working with local governments to amend their planning and zoning codes to permit movable tiny houses as ADUs. He is also working with several California municipalities for demonstration infill tiny home projects. Dan Fitzpatrick, welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.
0: Hey, thank you for having me.
1: You're very welcome. And you are the name that is getting, you know, Dan Fitzpatrick. That's what I, I keep hearing that you got to get him on the show because you're doing really great advocacy work. Um, so I was hoping that we could start off with just maybe talking about what's been happening lately in on the tiny house legalization front, like maybe some of the last couple of, of wins or, or higher profile kind of changes that have happened.
0: Well, I, a lot is happening to legalize tiny homes around the nation. And and remember, we have basically two types of tiny homes is, you know, your stick-built or modular tiny homes. And then we also have the tiny homes on wheels, different product. Uh, so as an association through the Tiny Home Industry Association, we've been trying to Uh, work with building code standards to make both easier and legal. So let me talk about things happening on two fronts. In terms of building tiny, if you would stick built, you know, go down and get a building permit and build a tiny house uh, on a lot or in your backyard, uh, a lot has happened is that we've, been able to get the 2018 International Residential Code to include an Appendices Q, which is a tiny home-friendly code that allows you to build houses with uh, sleeping lofts, uh, stairway treads, and type, types of things that work for, you know, tiny homes. And our role right now is solely but surely getting all 50 states to adopt that code and uh, working with local communities to also adopt that. And that's going very, very well. Uh, On the second front, in terms of movable tiny houses, we've been able to make uh, some major progress uh, with uh, movable tiny houses, especially here in California, that the cities of now Los Angeles, San Diego, last week, uh, San Jose, San Luis Obispo, and Fresno, and the county of uh, Santa Clara, which is the Silicon Valley, have now all approved movable tiny houses to be legal, habitable, accessory dwelling units. You can put them in your backyard. And that's that's big, big news and models that we'll be using uh, throughout the nation.
1: So on the first front, the adoption of Appendix Q, um, does that help with the second front, the kind of allowing of movable tiny homes as ADUs, or, or do you really see them as two separate initiatives?
0: The answer to your question is yes. You're right on both fronts. Is one, before Appendix Q was adopted... The building codes between movable tiny houses and tiny houses in general was that far apart. Now that we now that the what I'll call the mainstream building codes see and have adopted tiny house provisions to allow lofts and stairway treads and ceiling heights and um, building square footage standards to be tiny friendly, the codes are only that far apart. So it's much easier for me when I'm working with a city, uh, especially the building code people saying, wait a minute, what's the difference between this movable tiny house and a stick built tiny house other than one is on wheels? Because basically from the chassis up, they're the same product. And so, you know, because the codes have become so close, they, they have lofts, they have those sailing heights, all of which would meet if it was built on a foundation would meet, you know, standard international residential code. So that's much easier to work with local building officials and locally elected officials because they now see that, yes, there's a difference with the product, but the difference is no longer substantive, you know, because they're just so close in nature.
1: Sure. How many states have adopted Appendix Q at this
0: point? i would say about uh, 20 of them and um and, and 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 when i say adoption sometimes they uh adopt it as part of the code but then leave it up to local governments on whether or not they wish to adopt the appendices in their local jurisdiction uh and then there are some states like um certainly california That not only passed it and passed appendix Q, but they mandate that all cities and counties must accept it, that they must use it, which makes it a lot easier for me to deal with all of the various cities and communities in California. Is that that's by right. They can't say no, you can't use that code. So and the good news is, you know, we're The appendix Q is evolving. We just turned in uh, the updates to appendix Q for the 2021 International Residential Code. And now we're working on the 2023 code. And in the 2023 code, there will be no appendix Q. All the tiny stuff will be incorporated into the main body of the code, so we don't have to deal with state by state, community by community, appendices that will be part of you know the overall big code to begin with, and that's big, big change that'll happen uh, in three years
1: now, my understanding is though that the state still has to adopt the latest version of that code before it becomes the one that's used. like some states are still on. An older version.
0: Oh yeah, you go to Hawaii. I think they're on the 2008 vote. Um, um, a, a number of number of states are are behind, and a number of the states are very much. Um, how can I say that they leave everything up to the local government jurisdiction? They set very broad parameters, and local governments can then do their own thing. I've worked with communities in, like Texas, that their base building code as a community was like the 2005 or 2008 building code. But they, as a council, city council, adopted Appendix Q and said anything inconsistent with Appendix Q that's in the base code, Appendix Q takes precedent. So, you know, hey, whatever works is fine with me. And um, So each state, each community, we got to work with on a case by case basis. But a lot of the issues we've been debating for the last five years, five years from now will be non-issue. They will have gone away.
1: They will have gone away and and tiny homes will be largely accepted around the country.
0: I think you're going to see a large uh, acceptance of that. You know, some, some city planners or leaders see tiny homes as a fad. And as I keep showing them demographically, the demographics are such is 50% of the population needs a one-bedroom unit. That's it. They're either empty nesters or millennials or single moms or single dads, you know, et cetera. They just need one bedroom. And uh, that type of product, that downsized product, whether it be tiny houses or small houses, you know, something under 1,000 square feet is very much uh, the trend versus the McMansion. You know, I like, when I'm giving a talk to uh, communities, I one of my favorite slides is, as I show, look, when I was a kid in the, the 1950s, the average square footage of a house was 1,000 square feet, right? And that's back in the days where we had mom and dad and at least three kids, right? So you figure out that, square footage per person, it's less than a tiny house. In fact, uh, growing up, dad and I got relegated to the out- outdoor privy because there was only one bathroom in the house. And there was my mom and dad, my mom and two two sisters that used t- the interior bathroom. So I call it back to the future. We're, we're you know, there. what's happening is demographically, the size of the house has over doubled at the same time, the size of the average family has decreased and it's ridiculous. So there's a major move afoot uh, by folks to to downsize and produce product that's conducive to meet today's demographics.
2: Do you see this
1: happening? Because yeah, I agree that there's there is a huge demand and it's it's only going to be growing Do you see a path forward for, you know, individuals to continue these kind of DIY solo builds and have that be kind of accepted? Or do you more see this as a way for, like, developers and governments to do bigger projects? I guess what I'm asking is, do you see a path forward for the individual tiny house builder?
0: The the answer to your question is one of those, you know, the answer is yes to both. I mean, what's, what's, you know, we we are trying to, as an organization, as we're, um, how can I say it, for lack of a better word, professionalizing the tiny home industry and creating model standards that are acceptable to local and state government, you know, regulators, that we're trying to always include a path for the do-it-yourselfers to get permits to do their units. Uh, Remember, even under the current codes right now, you know, forget, you know, the movable tiny house, you know, industry is, you know, any individual, I as an individual, you as an individual can go down to your building department and get a permit to build a unit on a piece of property, right? You can build your own house. You just have to have it inspected and in certain instances, you're required to have an electrician or plumber you know, put in certain things, but the rest of it, you can build yourself. As it relates to movable tiny houses, we're trying to create pathways in is that the third party inspectors can do and inspect and add and give a certificate for a movable tiny house, and that those certificates, like in LA, San Diego, San Jose, will it be accepted by the local government communities as meeting the standards uh, to place and live in them in their communities. And that's what we were able to do in those cities is they will accept the do-it-yourselfers as well as the commercially built units.
2: Great. Yeah, that's I think
1: that's it would be easy to sweep the the individual builders under the rug, but I think it's it's great that it seems like the uh, really wants to keep that path open for, for individuals to do this, because that is a big part of, of the movement, the, you know, the kind of grassroots tiny house movement.
0: Right. And, and uh, again, you know, five years ago, when I started working on this, is there was uh, more pre- predominance of do-it-yourselfers. Today, the predominance are your commercial builders. You know, uh, folks uh, in each state that build 50 or more a year.
1: Right. And not just not everyone has time or skills to build their own house. And that's that's fine.
0: Right. And, and it's important for I mean, five years ago, I used to give talk to at Tiny Fest and talk about uh, the certification and reviews of units. And the do it yourselfers were not happy with that. And because they wanted to do their own thing. And I said, that's fine. You can do your own thing. But do not expect a local government official to allow you to place a unit there, because when push comes to shove, they're putting now their name on a permit, saying that your unit meets health and safety codes in such a way that they will allow you legally to live there. But once they do that, and if there's a problem, if there's a fire or someone gets hurt, they are liable for it, and there is no way in heck. They're going to do that unless you meet some basic code requirements like the NFPA 1192, you know, code or the ANSI 119.5, uh, you know, code. And there, there's a third party inspection sick, sticker attached there, too. And what's interesting when I give the talk now is everybody just shakes their, you know, nods their head and go, yeah,
2: you yeah.
0: know, I mean, it's, it's taken for granted now. Or five years ago, you'd all but get booed off the state. So uh, it's just so important that you have these basic standards in place. Because as an industry, think about it in terms of an industry. Guess what would happen if nationally a tiny house that was poorly built burns down and kills a family of three? Guess that what, what that will do to the industry? It will kill it across the board, right? So it's just absolutely essential that we have good, solid standards uh, to protect both the individuals that are living in it, uh, their surrounding community, but also for us as an industry.
1: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. What happens to one tiny house kind of reflects on, on the entire industry for sure. Oh, absolutely. Now, as a, as a kind of tiny house educator and somebody who has a website and puts out content, one of the most frequent questions I get is about, you know, how, you know, can I live legally in my tiny house in XYZ town, USA? And, you know, given the very fragmented nature of, of these laws, you know, does Thea have any resource or database that people can use to find out? the status of, of, you know, whether their town has what, what codes they're running on and, and what, what the current status of things are?
0: The answer is sort of. I mean, there's, there's no way anyone can have a database that deals with that because we're talking about 50 states and 20, 30, 40,000 different communities. There's no way one can, you know, as quickly as you had it updated, it is wrong right? Uh, Because, uh, uh, you know, the building codes and zoning codes and so forth are changing, you know, rapidly, you know, every six months, you'd have to update it or every three months, it's just, it's just logistically impossible. But with that said, is as as an association, as an organization, we've put out some training seminars, where if a person is interested in finding out about their community or want their community to be uh, tiny friendly. I put on two recent webinars on how to advocate and research your local government uh, community. And so um, anyone that is a member of the Tiny House Industry Association has access to those, you know, webinars. And, and it's very reasonable for individuals to join, an individual member to join the Tiny Home Industry Association. It's only $25. And that gives you access to all of our webinars, you know, our how-to uh, instructional videos, including a Facebook website that's for members only, that you can come in and ask questions and Uh, And in a lot of cases, even have live conversations with some of our experts on how to, you know, how to do uh, to do things. So um, the answer is, is you just got to do a lot as an individual. You got to do a lot of research about your local government of what they will allow, because there's two codes you got to look at. First is your building code. What will they, they, they allow on the building front? And number two is the zoning code. You could be fine on the building code front, and then find out that the zoning code says the minimum minimum square footage for a single family house is seven hundred square feet. Well, that's you know certainly does not help the folks building under four hundred square feet. Uh, So those various codes and uh, options and opportunities need to be you know looked at. And one of the things we're working on now is. uh, Trying to create some model codes for, for lack of a better word, uh, tiny home villages or cottage clusters uh, that we could use as a separate zoning you know, code or development code that can be used in various municipalities all over the country. And, um, you know, how that gets laid out, how that gets done is still a lot of local government um you know, action. But one thing I know about local government is they love models. They love, they love it if you can give them a model code and show them, here's how it's being done in five other cities or, you know, community, because then they feel much more comfortable with that. So that's one of the other enterprises we as an organization are working on.
1: Yeah, and that's something that I think a lot of people are really interested in, you mentioned before that, you know, 50% of the units, the 50% of the population needs a one bedroom unit, but they don't necessarily want to live, you know, out there in the middle of nowhere alone. People really want to live around other people. And I I think the the cottage clusters are a great way to address that.
0: Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and, and again, that gets, you know, it's very interesting. Those of us that understand zoning and development, uh, you know, it's it's very easy to say. Now, getting it written and getting it implemented is a, you know, very interesting task because what you're combining is some of the best worlds of single family home and some of the elements of, say, an apartment complex. Let me give you one example. Single family homes require parking right next to the house. An apartment building complex, you can have a centralized parking facility. Okay? Well, in a cottage cluster type development, we very well may want to have our units clustered, you know, around open space and trails, and then have centralized parking that you then walk into. You know your unit. So to write that code, you know for that design, we got to take certain elements of uh, the apartment. You know your typical apartment zoning code, and combine it with some of the best elements of your single-family home zone, and away you go. It's it's really uh, it'll be interesting, but I think once we get a couple really good examples underway. It'll take off like hotcakes.
1: Do you think it'll take off like hotcakes because it's you know appealing for a developer, you know, as a way of you know not making a quick buck, but that it's a way to take uh, an underutilized lot and
2: put more housing units on it.
0: The answer is uh, you know yes, again to both of them. I um, what I'm trying to do is come up with a type of a plan where. You can take an acre, you know, up to, let's say, five acres of land where you can have multiple units on that that are laid out in uh, could be common ownership or individual uh, ownership of actual, you know, houses with a HOA that takes care of all of the common space. But you can save a lot of money and um, utility costs by having, like, centralized garbage collection, centralized, you know, parking. It makes it a lot easier versus having a roadway, you know, a full width roadway connecting all of these units because you have to park next to the house, right? Versus having a uh, decomposed granite path, you know, down through you know your five or ten, you know, units that you walk to uh, to you know go to your unit. So there's a lot of a uh, lot of trade-offs. And um,
2: being a developer myself is, you know,
0: folks need to understand that the least of their costs, the least of their costs in a tiny home village
2: is the cost of the unit themselves. The biggest cost
0: is buying the land, you know, doing the site work, putting in the water, sewer, electric, parking, garbage collection, electric, cable, gas, you know, systems, putting in the sidewalk streets, you know, uh, uh, flood control, water and sewer systems. So if you're spending $100,000 per unit, multiply that by two, and that gives you an idea of what the costs are to do, you know, those types of things. So anything you can do to cut the costs on putting in utilities, roadways, You know, systems like that make the tiny house village so much more cost effective.
2: Sure. I wanted to ask about something that I've seen people have a lot of trouble with when they're
1: trying to place a tiny home, you know, in the backyard of a single family home, which is, you know, water and sewer, Uh, just getting that house hooked up. To the city's water and sewer in a way that is both legal and also affordable. What have you seen, you know, in these cities that are starting to allow movable tiny homes as ADUs? How are they addressing water and sewer with these, with these homes?
0: The, um, in California, which is sort of a strange state in and of itself, but, you know, we have some very unique laws here regarding accessory dwelling units. The, the good news is, is that all of the movable tiny houses that are being built in backyard, like in San Jose, San Diego, LA, are required to hook up to the water, sewer, and electric system of the main house. Now, electric and water is easy. You know, you basically trench, you know, a, you know, a pipe to a stand and you plug it in and or Put a hose on it and make sure you have an anti-siphon, you know, valve and you're in business. Usually, usually your bigger, you know, issue is, you know, how to tie the sewer system in. Uh, because, uh, as you well know, those there has to be gravity feed in most cases feeding into the main house and have accessibility to, you know, the house's sewer system. So, what normally happens is, you know, the builders here of units in California, one of the first things they do is go out and investigate the site and figure out where's the best way to put a trench in to get to the nearest, like sewer clean out,
2: you know, whatever. Okay. So, in worst
0: case scenario, you may have to have a little pump, but, you know, there's ways of getting it done. Uh, The second issue is, and and this is uh, one um, that it really just drives me nuts. It's a lot of cities have requirements that when you hook up to the water and sewer system, you got to pay fees, and a lot of those fees are based on here's what it costs to put a single-family house, you know, hooking into the water and sewer system. Well, that could be like ten thousand dollars. What we're talking about, in essence, a little one-bedroom unit with a bath paying the same fee as a 2000 square foot house. That's not right or fair. Here in California, that's prohibited. It's a, you know it it's got to be proportionate. In other words, you go to your local build, you know, your your local utilities to handle that and say, if I added a bedroom and a master bath onto my house, what would you charge me? And it's not going to be the same charge as A full house, and say now, what's the difference between what I'm building in the backyard and having an attached, you know, master suite? Right, should be the the cost should be proportional, and slowly but surely, cities are adopting that. In California, it's required by law. They can't they can't gouge you, and they can't gouge you for impact fees if you're building a unit in a backyard in California under 750 square feet. The uh, fees they can charge you, impact fees, is zero. So, anyway, each community needs to slowly but surely be able to work that through and address because there is absolutely no reason why a one-bedroom unit should be getting charged the same fees as someone building a typical single-family house.
2: Yeah, it's it's amazing how much goes into it. When you start talking
1: about, you know, oh, let's legalize tiny houses, how simplistic that is versus, you know, the fact that you're bringing in the Department of Public Works, you know, the people who control the water and the sewer and the zoning department and the building code department. And, you know, all these various bureaucracies end up coming into play to to allow this to happen. So easing Making it easier to put a tiny house in your backyard there's more to it than just than just one set of laws there's like a lot there
0: oh absolutely and and one of the things that uh, is in my webinar is uh, <clears throat> you know researching and getting a, an understanding of where are you located and which government entities and departments are going to be part of you know, the regulatory body overseeing your tiny house. And one of the examples I give is, let's say you're building a tiny house in the city of Las Vegas, putting it in the backyard. Okay, that's great. You go down to the city of Las Vegas to get your building permit. Right now, I want to hook up to the water. No, no, you don't go to the city. The water is handled by the Las Vegas Valley Water District, a total different entity. Okay, I do that. That's easy enough Now, let's say I want to have a uh nature head
2: toilet. You know, I want a composting toilet,
0: right? I'm not going to be hooking the toilet necessarily into the sewer system. Okay, now I gotta go to Clark County, the health department, which is the county Las Vegas is in, to get the permit for the sewage the way I wanna handle sewage from the environmental health people of the county. So now I have three legal entities overseeing my little tiny house. And if I wanna put um, uh, sidewalks or certain other things in, I have to go to the public works department of the city. So I gotta deal with the city building department, the city zoning department, the city uh, uh, public works department, the uh Las Vegas Valley Water District. And if I wanna do something interesting with my toilet, I gotta go get the county health department. So you need to understand all of these elements to um uh, you know handle these things. The good news is, is that once they've done it, it's fairly you know straightforward. They they know how to handle it. I, I just feel sorry for the first person through, you know, getting those permits because. They're in essence, I call them, they're the tank driver. They're making their own road, you know, versus the rest of the troops can follow the tank.
2: Today's
1: episode is sponsored by Precision Temp. Let's face it, most tiny house dwellers want their homes to be small, but not uncomfortable. That means reliable, unlimited hot water. Precision Temp's propane-fired hot water heaters reliably provide unlimited hot water, and they're specifically designed with tiny homes in mind. In fact, the NSP-550 model was installed in my own tiny home, and the reason I chose it was because it did not require a large hole in the side of my home, like other RV hot water heaters. Instead, it mounts discreetly through the floor of the tiny house and works quietly and reliably. With their patented very flame technology, these are the only gas-fired tankless water heaters approved by RVIA and are ANS certified. Features such as cold weather and wind protection, precise electronic temperature control, and onboard diagnostics are standard. With higher efficiency and 55,000 BTUs of power, these units produce far more hot water than traditional water heaters. And since they don't come on unless you want hot water or to protect against freezing, you may find that you use as little as half the propane or natural gas as before. So go ahead and take that long hot shower. Precision Temp is offering listeners of the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast $100 off plus free shipping using the coupon code THLP. Head over to PrecisionTemp.com and use the coupon code THLP for $100 off any order plus free shipping. That website again is PrecisionTemp.com, coupon code THLP. Thank you so much to Precision Temp for sponsoring our show. Got it. You're kind of—it's like the first person to to drive through a snowy street. You know, they pack down the snow, and then it's easier for everyone else.
0: Right. And um, fortunately, we're able to slowly but surely get these uh, are getting these things more simple, simplified, and standardized. I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm putting a tiny house again in the backyard in Las Vegas. Okay, I go get my you know permit. But then I have to put it on a pad and hook up to the utilities. Well, there are contractors that deal with that kind of stuff. They know how to get all of those permits. You hire them and tell them to do it. They know, I mean, a good person to hire to do that kind of work is find a contractor that is used to putting spas in the backyard. You know, if you think about a spa, it has to be hooked into the sewer, water, and electric you know, system. Well, that contractor knows how to do that. Stuff. It's no different than, you know, doing the same kind of trenching, but hooking up a tiny house to those systems versus a spa. And um, so And so let the experts go deal with that stuff.
1: So you mean like a hot tub spa?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Those are hooked up to, to sewer, too? Uh,
0: usually they're required to dump into the sewer system. You don't dump them out. You don't dump them out onto the street.
1: Right, right. Good point. That's an interesting, an interesting uh, kind of little trick or workaround, you know, to finding contractors who do something else, but that applies well to tiny homes.
0: Right. And, and, and again, even even a guy that builds pools and spas normally is also working with people that are building like the uh, the pool house. You know, so they're they're used to dealing with all of the kinds of permits that may be necessary to put the project or make the project real, you know, in the, in the backyard. Um,
2: uh, but if you're trying to do all of this yourself, it's, it's a handful. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about something that I know that, that
1: a lot of people in the tiny house movement are starting to make a change around, which is referring to tiny houses on wheels as movable tiny homes. And I'm curious if you can explain why that is important to start referring to them as movable tiny homes.
0: Well, I'm the one that came up with the term movable tiny house.
1: Sorry, movable tiny
2: house.
0: Yes, simply because I needed to get rid of the reference to those pesky wheels. Wheels, you know, when, when you talk to a building guy and tell them that something could be on wheels, they they usually head for the hills, right? They start shaking because in their mind, that's an RV. That's somebody else's responsibility. So I'm referring to these as movable tiny houses because yes, they're built on wheels. And yes, on a regular basis, if you wanted to, you can drive them up and down the highway. But for all intents and purposes, 99% 99% of mobile tiny houses are being built to be transported to a site, and then they sit there for five years. You know, if they, if they move every five years, it would be lucky, right? Uh, they're there that they're, you know, and sometimes they're just there for five years because uh, the parents need a caregiver or something for students going to college, etc. And then they might want to sell it or make it their, you know, uh, mountain cabin you know, in the future, you know, fine, then they can move it. But it's not a pure, what we'll call RV, you know, something that's moved on a constant basis. So a movable tiny house is a, a, a terminology that I've used that more accurately reflects how these units are built and really used in the real world, you know, versus uh, you know that they're on a regular basis traveling up and down the highway.
1: Got it. Yeah, the the wheels, re- referring to the wheels, is problematic. Is what I'm what I'm hearing.
0: Right. Uh, and uh, I mean, one of the one of the slides that I use regularly, and it's probably the best slide I use in my PowerPoint presentations, is I have a slide of two really neat, really beautiful tiny homes you know, that could be in a backyard. And I say to the council members, wouldn't you just love to have these units in the backyard? Wouldn't they be a, you know, a great attribute to your community? And they all nod their heads. Then I take them to the next slide, and it's exactly the same units, but they're on wheels. All I did is, uh, you know, use paint shop to airbrush out the wheels. And so I flip back and forth between the two units legal not legal legal not legal these pesky wheels is what causes you know the problem so i you know in my terminology that's why i very seldom will you hear me talk about wheels unless it's in a code that says um because some cities require that uh yeah they'll allow movable tiny houses but when you put it on a pad they want you to put it on some kind of piers or system, uh, and they want the wheels off and they want it skirted. Okay, that's fine. You're pretty much I would want to do that anyway because I don't want my wheels to rock. You know, and you skirt it. And quite frankly, how are, once you skirt it, how would they know if the wheels are on or not? You know, <laughs> I mean, once they inspect it. Uh, so I have some cities that want the wheels left on and some want them off. I don't care one way or the other. Just tell me.
1: Sure. Just tell me one way or the other and we'll do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, once the inspection is done, no inspector is sitting out in your backyard watching if you put the wheels on or off. Right. I mean, you're,
2: you're done. Yeah. That's, that's a good point
1: about nobody's like really going to come to check on this unless somebody complains. Right.
0: Right. Well, I mean, yeah, after the, after the, you know, the inspection is done and you're given your certificate of occupancy, you're good, unless you're blatantly, you know, doing something uh, that causes problems with the neighbors and they turn you in. But for these, you know, kinds of, uh, you know, units, wheels on, wheels off, you know, whatever kind of thing, if you have it properly skirted and it looks nice, you know, et cetera, who's going to bother you? No one.
2: Got it. Are there? How do you suggest that you know individual
1: tiny house enthusiasts get involved to help push these these new laws and new regulations forward?
0: Well, they need to take my seminar. <laughs> no, I mean, right. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. As the, the you just can't, as an advocate, you just can't go down to city hall and say hi. I want you to do. I want you to make things. Legal, you know, tiny legal. You got to do your research. Uh, let me give you an example. I ha- I was, I got a call about a year ago from a young lady in San Diego, who who was out, and she said, she said, Dan, I I've really got. I've been working with the San Diego City Council. I've been talking to a number of them, and uh, they want to be tiny friendly. They're very supportive of what we want to do. Etc. Can you work with me to help, you know, get it done? I said, great. I said, tell me about your project. She says, Well, we got a hundred acres that we're going to be doing X, Y, and Z on. I go, wait a minute, stop. Stop, stop, stop. There is no such thing as a hundred vacant acres in the city of San Diego. Certainly, you know, if there were, it would be a few hundred million dollars worth of you know land, right? Oh no, I'm I'm one hour east of san diego i, I said I said, well you're then in the county of san diego you spent a year talking to the wrong people you got to talk to the county board of supervisors they're the ones that are over your project so it's absolutely essential that when you're want to advocate for tiny homes tiny home living in your community do your research you know where do you live where do you want the unit what jurisdiction are you in? Who, who are you know? Who are the uh, folks that would be involved in the decision making on whether that you know would work, you know, or not? And before I ever, I mean, I do development for a living. Before I ever, ever take a project into uh, the planning department or talk to a city council member and so forth, I know everything there is to know about the city, the city codes. Uh, Whether they like or not, you know, the product that that I'm, you know, building. And you can do all of that research by using a very unique tool. It's called Google, right? And you just Google Las Vegas tiny homes or, you know, Kansas City tiny home or um, tiny living in uh, uh, Duluth, Minnesota, right? And you can find out. All of the articles, all of the issues, all of the discussions the city has had on that topic, you know, and then you can read, you know, who's been for it, who's been against it, what the, what, you know, neighbors, you know, show up to protest it, you know, et cetera. You can do so much research by just sitting at your computer. And then when you go down, talk to the city, first person I talked to is one I already know by reading the newspaper. Or doing my research that I already know that they're pro affordable housing or they're pro tiny house. Now they're the best people to help you get through the system because they're on the inside, right? So I cannot stress enough that if you want to be an advocate for tiny home, is doing the upside, upfront research uh, to find out what's doable, what's reasonable. Who may be your allies, and then, you know, walk in. Don't walk in cold, because what generally happens is the easiest thing for a bureaucrat to do is say no. They don't get in trouble by saying no, right? But you gotta, you gotta, you know, walk in with some, you know, ideas, and uh, uh, that you have a pretty good idea that you're now preaching to the choir on something versus you went went in, you know, cold.
2: Yeah, that kind of brings up the 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 old debate of whether you should ask permission or beg forgiveness.
1: And it sounds like you're you're helping to shift the tiny house movement from an ask from
2: a beg forgiveness to an ask permission model, but to ask it in the right way. Right. Right. And um
0: and, and there's, there's ways of doing it. And, and, and it also depends on the, you know, the portion of the country. I mean, if you're in a very rural area of, say, West Virginia, right, the chances of them coming out and red tagging you and chasing you around is very low. I mean, they're just happy you have a floor, right, um, and a roof over your head versus, you know, the quality of housing in their community, you know, in general. But you go into a a larger community like Raleigh, North Carolina, right? I mean, you know, the neighbors will let someone know that there's something going on that shouldn't be going on, right? So it's best to try to figure out up front, how do I get the local governments to permit me to do the type of situation or living kind of situation we want? And sometimes it's not pretty. Sometimes we're putting ground pegs into square holes. But once you get the elected officials, a couple, you know, someone from the planning department, maybe the building department on your side, that they want to figure out how to say yes, they'll help you get through the system, you know, to get it done. I'll, I'll give you an example. There was one, one community that uh, had a requirement that, um uh, there has to be a minimum of 600 square feet for a single family house. Okay, so I started asking questions around. Well, they, as a community, would, would say that as part of a of their living unit would be a screened-in porch. Okay, put a 400-square-foot tiny house on it and put a 300- or 200-square-foot screened-in porch on it, which costs you, you know, very little. It's like a deck with a screen on it, and voila, you're in... You're in conformance with the law.
2: So do your research. You know, there's there's more than one way of
0: skinning the cat. And each community is different. Each, uh, you know, building code official is different. And the building code and zoning code folks have a lot of leeway to work with you uh, if you um, come in and, you know, be flexible and try to work with them to get some things done.
1: Yeah, one One insight that I've always remembered um, from my interview of Abby Hobson, who um, started Tiny Estates, which is, I think, still the world's biggest tiny house community. It's in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. She, She gave the advice that rather than going in and saying, kind of like, I want to do this, you know, make this legal for me, kind of say how can I do this? Like, what, what is the way that I can do this in this town? And that, that, you know, in a way, these people's jobs are to help you get it done, not to say no, but to help you figure out a way to do it.
0: No, she's absolutely right. And it's in my webinar. All right. The, uh, you know, one of the tricks of the trade I use is, Even when I'm doing my own development of business, I don't go in and say to the planner, here's my final plan, you know, process it, especially if it's something that I know they really haven't done before. You know, I'm gonna need some help. I go in with with a
2: all but you know, hand-drawn
0: conceptual plan with draft stamped stamped on it 20 different places, right? And say, Here's my concept. Here's what I envision. You know, Can you help me? How can I get through the system or what amendments do I need to the code to you know, work with this? And then I lay out my plan. And here's what key, throw on the table a, a bunch of pencils. Once they pick up that pencil and start doodling on your plan, they're yours because they're now part of designing it for you. Sometimes I I will even put on my plans things I know that are wrong so they can correct something. (laughs) You know, (laughs) now they feel part of, you know, the whole process that when I walk out of there, the first email I send to them is, here's my updated plan based on, You know, your review and concept. Thank you tremendously. You really made this a lot better, right? It's now there. So make them part of the process and especially planners. Planners love to work on something that's new and interesting and innovative. And make them your friend. Make them part of the process versus I want to do this. Well, no, they don't have to let you do anything.
2: That's great
1: advice. I think that's that's so important because there have been some, you know, fairly high profile examples of people kind of saying, Oops, I did this. I want it to be legal now. And and the town's kind of smacking them down.
0: Yeah, now that's not the best way to go. I know it's happened. And sometimes you can, you know, ask for forgiveness and back in. But, you know, you know. let's face it. If you're going to be spending $50,000, dollars $70,000 for a unit, you know, you don't want to be out on the street trying to figure out where to put it. You know, you, you, you need to be thinking about those things, uh, you know, up, up front. And what are some of the hoops I have to jump through? I'll give you even an example right now in, like, San Diego and L.A. Yes, they... They allow movable tiny houses and backyards now, but there are certain building and um, design criteria that you have to meet, and they put them in there because it's a way to keep out what I'll call conventional RVs. They don't want conventional RVs, so they put in design criteria to make sure those design criteria just automatically get rid of conventional RVs i 'll give you an example in almost all of the cities they require that at least fifty percent of the roof be a sloped roof well, that just gets rid of like ninety percent of conventional rVs right away because they're either rounded or flat roofs right that's why they put that in there well, if you as a someone that wants to be a tiny house home owner in that area is you know before you go build your own or you hire someone to do it, make sure that whoever you're hiring is and understands the hoops they need to jump through in that, you know, community. So you get a unit that's built to, you know, the San Diego, L.A., you know, standard. So that's why it's important to go check that out first, because you put the try to go put the wrong unit in a backyard, you may be slapped down.
2: Got it.
1: Well, is there anything kind of coming down the pike that you're excited about that you can tell us about right now?
0: Well, the main thing is, is I think slowly but surely we're working with states and local governments to make their laws tiny friendly, and that's just like an ongoing process. But I'm I'm switching a lot of my focus from you know what I'll call individual units, allowing them you know individually or in a backyard as an ADU or whatever to Designing some what I'll call model uh, tiny home villages or tiny home cottage clusters, you know, different cities like, you know, different words. Some cities like the word bungalow because they have examples of bungalows that were built in the 30s that have been renovated and are really nice. OK, uh, so I, you know, so whether it's a tiny home village, or a tiny home cottage cluster or tiny home bungalows trying to come up with a zoning and design code criteria land use land design criteria is the model that I want to you know complete and work with a couple communities to do them actually have them pass now I can take around the country here's what city x y and z has done and here's how they did it and here's how it meets various you know codes and here's how it You know, water, sewer, electric, uh, parking, zoning, uh, open space, uh, 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 pedestrian transportation, solar energy efficiency, garbage collection, right, that you deal with all of those issues. And then you can say, here's a couple different ways how you can handle those issues. And so that's my next goal is to have model codes that permit that.
1: Fantastic. I think that'll be a great resource and and just really exciting to follow. Um, One thing that I like to ask all of my guests is, um, are there any books or resources that you recommend? I know you've recommended that webinar on advocacy and um, it is on my to watch list. I'm excited to check it out. Um, Any books on development or advocacy or, you know, things that, that you refer back to that you can share with us?
0: Uh, no, my my book is 50 years of experience doing this. And um, you know, whether it's a developer or government official, um, yeah, there's a lot of books that you can find on advocacy, but there are no books on advocating for tiny homes. Because it's a very, you know, you can you know advocate for anything like a, a land development project or whatever, or real estate or something. But advocating for tiny homes and the the specifics for that there really isn't you know a a book on it we are writing the book that's what's fun for me is I'm not going to you know resources that these things have already being invented is we're writing the book by writing these model codes trying to come up with models and pilot programs to see what works what doesn't you know work uh, create examples where people can come and see real-life development and how the issues work. So that's why I've had to basically come up with my own webinars and my own PowerPoint presentations, my own, you know, videos, because there isn't a wealth of data, you know, to go to. And some of the books and pamphlets and stuff that are out there are dated. And anything in the tiny house industry stuff right now, if it's, it's like electronics, if it's a year old, it's out of date. <laughs> That's how quickly the industry is uh, progressing.
1: Wow. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I really appreciate everything you've shared. And I want to encourage uh, all the listeners to uh, join uh join Thea, check out that webinar. Um, and Dan Fitzpatrick, thank you so much for your work and for your time on the show today. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much to Dan Fitzpatrick for being a guest on the show this week. You can find the show notes, including links to Thea at thetinyhouse.net slash one thirty one. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash one thirty one. Thank you to our sponsor this week, Precision Temp. Don't forget to check them out at PrecisionTemp.com and use the coupon code THLP for $100 off your order plus free shipping. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be
2: back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.